Section 9 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Daniel Webster, Part 1. A.D. 1782 to 1852. The American Union. If I were required to single out the most prominent political genius in the history of the United States after the death of Hamilton, I should say it was Daniel Webster. He reigned for thirty years as a political dictator to his party, and at the same time was the acknowledged head of the American bar. He occupied two spheres, in each of which he gained preeminence. But for envy, and the enemies he made, he probably would have reached the highest honor that the nation had to bestow. His influence was vast, until those discussions arose which provoked one of the most gigantic wars of modern times. For a generation he was the object of universal admiration for his eloquence and power. In political wisdom and experience he had no contemporaneous superior. There was no public man from 1820 to 1850 who had so great a prestige, and whose name and labors are so well remembered. His speeches and forensic arguments are more often quoted than those of any other statesman and lawyer the country has produced. His works are in every library, and are still read. His fame has not waned, in spite of the stirring events which have taken place since his death. Great generals have arisen and passed out of mind, but the name and memory of Webster are still fresh. Amid the tumults and parties of the war he foresaw and dreaded, his glory may have passed through an eclipse, but his name is to-day one of the proudest connected with our history. Living men, occupying great official positions, are of course more talked about and thought of than he. But of those illustrious characters who figured in public affairs a generation ago, no one has so great a posthumous fame and influence as the distinguished senator from Massachusetts. No man since the days of Jefferson is seated on a loftier pedestal, and no one is likely to live longer, if not in the nation's heart, yet in its admiration for intellectual superiority and respect for political services. While he reigned as a political oracle for more than thirty years, almost an idol in the eyes of his constituents, it was his misfortune to be dethroned and reviled, in the last ten years of his life, by the very people who had exalted and honored him, and at last to die broken-hearted from the loss of his well-earned popularity and the failure of his ambitious expectations. His life is sad as well as proud, like that of so many other great men who at one time led, and at another time opposed, popular sentiments. Their names stand out on every page of history, examples of the mutability of fortune, alike joyous and saddened men, reaping both glory and shame, and sometimes glory for what is evil and shame for what is good. When Daniel Webster was born, 1782, in Salisbury, New Hampshire, near the close of our revolutionary struggle, there were very few prominent and wealthy families in New England, very few men more respectable than the village lawyers, doctors, and merchants, or even thrifty and intelligent farmers. Very few great fortunes had been acquired, and these chiefly by the merchants of Boston, Salem, Portsmouth, and other seaports whose ships had penetrated to all parts of the world. Webster sprang from the agricultural class, larger then in proportion to other classes than now at the East, at a time when manufactures were in their infancy and needed protection, when travel was limited, when it was a rare thing for a man to visit Europe, when the people were obliged to practice the most rigid economy, when everybody went to church, when religious skepticism sent those who avowed it to Coventry, when ministers were the leading power, 
when the press was feeble and elections were not controlled by foreign immigrants when men drank rum instead of whiskey and lager beer had never been heard of nor the great inventions and scientific wonders which make our age an era had anywhere appeared the age of progress had scarcely then set in and everybody was obliged to work in some way to get an honest living for the revolutionary war had left the country poor and had shut up many channels of industry the farmers at that time were the most numerous and powerful class sharp but honest and intelligent who honored learning and enjoyed discussions on metaphysical divinity their sons did not then leave the paternal acres to become clerks in distant cities nor did their daughters spend their time in reading french novels or sneering at rustic duties and labors this age of progress had not arisen when everybody looks forward to a millennium of idleness and luxury or to a fortune acquired by speculation and gambling rather than by the sweat of the brow in age in many important respects justly extolled especially for scientific discoveries and mechanical inventions yet not remarkable for religious earnestness or moral elevation the life of daniel webster is familiar to all intelligent people his early days were spent amid the toils and blessedness of a new england farmhouse favored by the teachings of intelligent god-fearing parents who had the means to send him to phillips academy in exeter then recently founded where he fitted for college and shortly after entered dartmouth at the age of fifteen in connection with webster i do not read of any remarkable precocity at school or college such as marked cicero macaulay and gladstone but it seems that he won the esteem of both teachers and students and was regarded as a very promising youth after his graduation he taught an academy at freiburg for a time then began the study of the law first at salisbury and subsequently in boston in the office of the celebrated governor gore he was admitted to the bar in 1805 and established himself in boscawen but soon afterwards removed to portsmouth where he entered on a large practice encountering such able lawyers as jeremiah mason and jeremiah smith who both became his friends and admirers for webster's legal powers were soon the talk of the state at the early age of 31 he entered congress 1813 and took the whole house by surprise with his remarkable speeches during the war with great britain on such topics as the enlargement of the navy the repeal of the embargo and the complicated financial questions of the day in 1815 he retired a while from public life and removed to boston where he enjoyed a lucrative practice in 1822 he re-entered congress so popular was he at this time that on his re-election to congress in 1824 he received four thousand nine hundred and ninety nine votes out of five thousand votes cast in 1827 he entered the senate where he was to reign as one of its greatest chiefs the idol of his party in new england practicing his profession at the same time a leader of the american bar and an oracle in politics on all constitutional questions with this rapid sketch i proceed to enumerate the services of daniel webster to his country since on these enduring fame and gratitude are based and first i allude to his career as a lawyer not a narrow technical lawyer seeking to gain his case any way he can with an eye on pecuniary awards alone but a lawyer devoted himself to the study of great constitutional questions and fundamental principles in his legal career when for nearly forty years he discussed almost every issue that can arise between individuals and communities some half a dozen cases have become historical because of the importance of the principles and interests involved in the gibbons and ogden case he assumed the broad ground that the grant of power to regulate commerce was exclusively the right of the general government william wirt his distinguished antagonist then at the height of his fame relied on the coasting license given by the states 
but the lucid and luminous arguments of the young lawyer astonished the court and made old judge marshall lay down his pen draw back in his chair turn up his coat cuffs and stare at the speaker in amazement at his powers the first great case which gave webster a national reputation was that pertaining to dartmouth college his alma mater which he loved as newton loved cambridge the college was in the hands of politicians and webster recovered the college from their hands and restored it to the trustees laying down such broad principles that every literary and benevolent institution in this land will be grateful to him forever this case which was argued with consummate ability and with words as eloquent as they were logical and lucid melting a cold court into tears placed webster in the front rank of lawyers which he kept until he died in the ogden and saunders case he settled the constitutionality of state bankrupt laws in that of the united states bank he maintained the right of a citizen of one state to perform any legal act in another in that which related to the efficacy of stephen gerard's will he demonstrated the vital importance of christianity to the success of free institutions so that this very college which excluded clergymen from being teachers in it or even visiting it has since been presided over by laymen of high religious character like judge jones and dr allen in the rhode island case he proved the right of a state to modify its own institutions of government in the knapp murder case he brought out the power of conscience the voice of god to the soul with such terrible forensic eloquence that he was the admiration of all christian people no better sermon was ever preached than this appeal to the conscience of men in these and other cases he settled very difficult and important questions so that the courts of law will long be ruled by his wisdom he enriched the science of jurisprudence itself by bringing out the fundamental laws of justice and equity on which the whole science rests he was not as learned as he was logical and comprehensive his greatness as a lawyer consisted in seeing and seizing some vital point not obvious or whose importance was not perceived by his opponent and then bringing to bear on this point the whole power of his intellect his knowledge was marvelous on those points essential to his argument but he was not probably learned like kent in questions outside his cases i mean the details and technicalities of law he did however know the fundamental principles on which his great cases turned and these he enforced with much eloquence and power so that his ablest opponents quailed before him perhaps his commanding presence and powerful tones and wonderful eye had something to do with his success at the bar as well as in the senate a brow a voice and an eye that meant war when he was fairly aroused although he appealed generally to reason without tricks of rhetoric if he sometimes intimidated he rarely resorted to exaggerations but confined himself strictly to the facts so that he seemed the fairest of men this moderation had great weight with an intelligent jury and with learned judges he always paid great deference to the court and was generally courteous to his opponents of all his antagonists at the bar perhaps it was jeremiah mason and rufus choate whom he most dreaded yet both of these great men were his warm friends warfare at the bar does not mean personal animosity it is generally mutual admiration except in the antagonism of such rivals as hamilton and burr webster's admiration for wirt pinckney curtis and mason was free from all envy in fact webster was too great a man for envy and great lawyers were those whom he loved best whom he felt to be his brethren not secret enemies his admiration for jeremiah mason was only equaled by that for judge marshall who was not a rival webster praised marshall as he might have erskine or lyndhurst mr webster again attained to great eminence in another sphere in which lawyers have not always succeeded 
that of popular oratory in the shape of speeches and lectures and orations to the people directly in this sphere i doubt if he ever had an equal in this country although edward everett rufus choate wendell phillips and others were distinguished for their popular eloquence and in some respects were the equals of webster but he was a great teacher of the people directly a sort of lecturer on the principles of government of finance of education of agriculture of commerce he was superbly eloquent in his eulogies of great men like adams and jefferson his bunker hill and plymouth addresses are immortal he lectured occasionally before lyceums and literary institutions he spoke to farmers in their agricultural meetings and to merchants in marts of commerce he did not go into political campaigns to any great extent as is now the custom with political leaders on the eve of important elections he did not seek to show the people how they should vote so much as to teach them elemental principles he was the oracle the sage the teacher not the politician in the popular assemblies whether for the discussion of political truths or those which bear on literature education history finance or industrial pursuits mr webster was preeminent what audiences were ever more enthusiastic than those that gathered to hear his wisdom and eloquence in public halls or in the open air it is true that in his later years he lost much of his wonderful personal magnetism and did not rise to public expectation except on great occasions but in middle life in the earlier part of his congressional career he had no peer as a popular orator edward everett on some occasions was his equal so far as manner and words were concerned but on the whole even in his grandest efforts everett was cold compared with webster in his palmy days he never touched the heart and reason as did webster although it must be conceded that everett was a greater rhetorician and was master of many of the graces of oratory these speeches and orations of webster were not only weighty in matter but were wonderful for their style so clear so simple so direct that everybody could understand him he rarely attempted to express more than one thought in a single sentence so that his sentences never wearied an audience being always logical and precise not involved and long and complicated like the periods of chalmers and choate and so many of the english orators it was only in his grand perorations that he was ciceronian he despised purely extemporary efforts he did not believe in them he admits somewhere that he never could make a good speech without careful preparation the principles embodied in his famous reply to colonel hayne of south carolina in the debate in the senate on the right of nullification had lain brooding in his mind for eighteen months to a young minister he said there is no such thing as extemporaneous acquisition webster's speeches are likely to live for their style alone outside their truths like those of cicero and demosthenes like the histories of voltaire and macaulay like the essays of pascal and rousseau and they will live not only for both style and matter but for the exalted patriotism which burns in them from first to last for those sentiments which consecrate cherished institutions how nobly he recognizes christianity as the bulwark of national prosperity how delightfully he presents the endearments of home the certitudes of friendship the peace of agricultural life the repose of all industrial pursuits however humble and obscure it was this fervid patriotism this public recognition of what is purest in human life and exalted in aspirations and profound in experience teaching the value of our privileges and the glory of our institutions which gave such effect to his eloquence and endeared him to the hearts of the people until he opposed their passions 
if we read any of these speeches extending over thirty years we shall find everywhere the same consistent spirit of liberty of union of conciliation the same moral wisdom the same insight into great truths the same recognition of what is sacred the same repose on what is permanent the same faith in the expanding glories of this great nation which he loved with all his heart in all his speeches one cannot find a sentence which insults the consecrated sentiment of religion or patriotism he never casts a fling at christianity he never utters a sarcasm in reference to revealed truths he never flippantly aspires to be wiser than moses or paul in reference to theological dogmas ah my friends said he in eighteen twenty five let us remember that it is only religion and morals and knowledge that can make men respectable and happy under any form of government that no government is respectable which is not just that without unspotted purity of public faith without sacred public principle fidelity and honor no mere form of government no machinery of laws can give dignity to political society thus did he discourse in those proud days when he was accepted as a national idol and a national benefactor those days of triumph and of victory when the people gathered around him as they gather around a successful general ah how they thronged to the spot where he was expected to speak as the scotch people thronged to edinburgh and glasgow to hear gladstone and when they saw his chariot but appear did they not make an universal shout that tiber trembled underneath her banks to hear the replication of their sounds made in her concave shores but it is time that i allude to those great services which webster rendered to his country when he was a member of congress services that can never be forgotten and which made him a national benefactor there were three classes of subjects on which his genius preeminently shone questions of finance the development of american industries and the defense of the constitution as early as eighteen fifteen mr webster acquired a national reputation by his speech on the proposition to establish a national bank which he opposed since it was to be relieved from the necessity of redeeming its notes in specie this was at the close of the war with great britain when the country was poor business prostrated and the finances disordered to relieve this pressure many wanted an inflated paper currency which should stimulate trade but all this mr webster opposed as certain to add to the evils it was designed to cure he would have a bank indeed but he insisted it should be established on sound financial principles with notes redeemable in gold and silver and he brought a great array of facts to show the certain and utter failure of a system of banking operations which disregarded the fundamental financial laws he maintained that an inflated currency produced only temporary and elusive benefits nor did he believe in hopes which were not sustained by experience banks said he are not revenue they may afford facilities for its collection and distribution but they cannot be sources of national income which must flow from deeper fountains whatever banknotes are not convertible into gold and silver at the will of the holder become of less value than gold and silver no solidity of funds no confidence in banking operations has ever enabled them to keep up their paper to the value of gold and silver any longer than they paid gold and silver on demand similar sentiments he advanced in eighteen sixteen in his speech on the legal currency and also in eighteen thirty two when he said that a disordered currency is one of the greatest of political evils fatal to industry frugality and economy it fosters the spirit of speculation and extravagance it is the most effectual of inventions to fertilize the rich man's field by the sweat of the poor man's brow 
in these days when principles of finance are better understood these remarks may seem like platitudes but they were not so fifty or sixty years ago for then they had the force of new truth although even then they were the result of political wisdom based on knowledge and experience and his views were adopted for he appealed to reason end of section nine